today is a particularly interesting topic, and I, I, I pulled a quote from one of the panelists which I thought was particularly appropriate in describing what this is all about here at the university. Education isn't just about imparting knowledge. It's about imparting wisdom. It is not only about critical thought and intellectual achievement. It is also about developing personal and social skills with an integrated depth of experience enabling our students to transform into active, engaged, and compassionate citizens of a diverse world. Uh, that's from David Germano, who you will meet shortly. The University of Virginia founded a, the Center for Com Contemplative Sciences last year. It is a unique cross-disciplinary approach to rigorously study the benefits of a wide variety of contemplative practices from a broad spectrum of cultures. Today, More in the Score brings you a panel of university's leading experts in this effort. Leading today's panel will be Dory Fontaine. Dory came to the university in 2008 as the dean of the School of Nursing. Since her arrival, she has taken a very good program and made it one of the best in the nation. The nursing school, little known fact, is the hardest undergraduate school to, get, to gain admission, in large part because of Dory and all that she's done. And positions in the graduate programs are also very highly sought after. She and her husband, Barry, have embraced the university and its culture. Their home, Pavilion 9, uh, has become not only a meeting place for many nursing students, but also many across grounds. Please welcome Dory Fontaine, who will introduce the rest of our distinguished panel. Thank you. It's wonderful to be invited back, and this time I brought some of my most wonderful colleagues. And I'd like to just tell you a little bit about, I'm going to get to the slide. You want to put the slide on? Maybe the panel. So, you know, I wanted to tell you the very beginnings of this, because to be honest with you, University of Virginia is such an incredible place with 11 schools here, and there's people that I would never have gotten to meet were it not for Terry Sullivan, in I think it was May of 2011, put a little dinner together with people that actually never met before from all across the university, and you're not going to believe what we talked about. Um, it was about yoga and maybe a, a beginnings of could we have a center to look at yoga, and we were like, what's this all about? But as we got to know each other, um, we realized that we were all into different varieties of contemplative practices, and after that dinner, Thanks to David Germano, who I'm going to introduce, we put a proposal together, and now we have this $15 million center for the study of contemplative sciences. And that's what you all woke up to this morning, waking up here. So I want to tell you about these colleagues. So David Germano, and you've seen it flashing through here, he is a Tibetan scholar. He's a professor in the religious studies department here. And again, people in nursing wouldn't necessarily bump into people in religious studies. He coordinates our contemplative sciences center. He really is, I don't know if I should call him the brains behind it, the charisma behind it, but he's our leader. There's 20 of us working together, but he's the leader. He also directs three centers, the Tibetan and Himalayan Library, the Tibet Center, and Shanti, which is the sciences, humanities, and the arts network of technological initiatives. He focuses on history of Tibetan Buddhism and many, many other um, areas of scholarship. He goes to Asia frequently and works closely with the people of Asia. He has a deep love for them. I just came back from Bhutan with him and um, six other faculty. And let me just tell you, he loves the people of that region. He teaches one of the most sought-after courses here. 200 people take a course called Tibetan Buddhism Introduction. And it is incredibly, incredibly popular. It's going to be a MOOC one of those massive online courses in the spring, and I hope he'll tell you more about that. So David is a beloved colleague. Actually, I, I have um, enjoyed him so much, I made him a professor of nursing in the School of Nursing. <laughs> and he has volunteered to do whatever I need as soon as I figure that out, right, David? The next speaker will be another wonderful colleague, David Mick. He's from the McIntyre School. He actually is a Robert Hill Carter Professor in Marketing at um, the McIntyre School. And he has a special expertise in wisdom and executive leadership and looking at how consumers behave. He's been all over the world with this topic. He's been a fellow in the Society for Consumer Psychology. He teaches, he, in addition, he teaches this incredible course called Wisdom and Wellbeing, and he's going to share that with 
with us. It's an elective. I think it's highly sought after, and I got to meet those students, and I know how much they value this course. How many business schools teach a course called Wisdom and Wellbeing? Again, a feature of the University of Virginia. And finally, my own colleague, Susan Barawu, I met her four years ago at Upaya Zen Center. She was teaching about neuroimmunology and how, what is the science behind meditation and mindfulness and why it works. You know, it's not voodoo, it's actually science. And I fell in love with her then, and it took me four years to recruit her to the University of Virginia. She is the Tussie and John Kluge Chair of Contemplative End-of-Life Care. She has a real passion for looking at the needs of healthcare providers and healthcare workers for resili creating resilience so that they can really withstand the pressures and the chaos of our health system. She's teaching my, my undergraduate students. She has a wonderful new course that was um, oversubscribed instantly called Introduction to Mindfulness. She opens it up to the whole university as well. And she'll be doing a book signing on her book called Leaves Falling Gently, which I, have, I buy by the cartload and I give out to people all the time. So I hope you'll be interested in taking a look at that. So without further ado, I'm going to let our panel speak. They're each going to talk about their passionate areas for about 10 minutes. And um, then we're going to have question and answer, because we always get a lot of um, controversial, great questions from this crowd, is what I remember. So David, I'm going to turn it over to you. Thank you so much. Okay, th thank you so much today for the opportunity to talk with you about contemplative sciences at UVA and also thanks Dory for that kind introduction and all the inspiration you provide all of us. This summer I was with Dory and as Dory said another dean, Harry Harding from the Batten School and several other lead faculty and we were together with a bunch of Yale faculty and I remember after they first met Harry and um, Dory after dinner they looked at me and they said, who were those people? because they said they would never be able to have such conversations with deans at Yale. So that was a real tribute to Dory and the other deans and the leadership we have here at the University of Virginia. So I want to start with, okay, I can start by picking this up. Um, okay, I want to start, this is the Contemplative Sciences website, but I want to start with a very basic question, which is, what is contemplation? And to address that question, what contemplation is, I want to start with a human fact, something that's becoming increasingly clear to us from a variety of research domains. And that human fact is malleability, it's plasticity, it's our ability to change. It's not the reality of change, which we all are very familiar with, that dramatic transformation that we undergo from birth to death, but rather the lifelong capacity for change, for deliberate, conscious transformation. Our brains can be changed in function and structure in just a week. The architecture of our genes' expression can be altered by contemplation in an afternoon. So too, our body's flexibility and pain, our emotions, our personalities, our intellect's capacity for analysis, our stress resiliency, our emotional intelligence, our ability to lead, where once we thought there was structure, function, disposition, that were hardly rigidly, uh, sorry, rigidly hard-coded in our bodies, in our minds, in our emotions, our personalities, whether through genetics or evolution or childhood upbringing, research today in the academy, in psychology and education and health sciences, in business and architecture and the humanities, is showing a lifelong capacity for dramatic change and development. So the challenge that we face then is how do we take advantage of this fundamental malleability um, as teachers of young men and women at such crucial junctures in their lives. And to understand this, we have to understand how such change happens. How can we bring it about? Can we teach it? Can we learn it? And so the answer to these questions lays in the role of human practice, seemingly a very simple thing, human practice, human agency. If these things aren't just natural, if it's not just hard-coded in our destiny and our genes, how we have to be and how we are, then they are the product of practices that we engage in. And they can be changed by new practices that we deliberately choose and we consciously implement. New practices that are physical, that are emotional, that are cognitive, that are verbal, that are relational, social, and which in turn generate new outcomes. How we think, how we relate to others, how we feel, how we experience our bodies, how we analyze things. We are the product 
of a complex array of practices from the moment we're born. But unfortunately, these are mostly not the result of conscious change, but of accident, of upbringing, or even trauma. And so the outcomes that those practices generate, the person that we are, is often not aligned with our fundamental goals, values, or well-being. So what allows such learning and change to take place? It's the power of self-awareness. Unlike the rest of life on this planet, we have this capacity, this intense, dynamic self-awareness that we can bring to every aspect of our lives. We can bring it to our bodies, to our emotions, to our thought processes, our memories, our reactions, our relationships, our behaviors, to the world around us. Indeed, we can bring awareness to awareness, meta-awareness, self-awareness. And through such self-awareness, we can become deeply and experientially aware of these practices that we engage in and the outcomes that they generate in our own lives and in the lives that we live together. And once we accomplish the awareness of such practices in ourselves, not just in others, not just as an academic object of study, the additional power of such human self-awareness is when you properly cultivate it, it makes those old practices, those ancient practices that seem to be just impossible to change, pliable, malleable, changeable. Additionally, values and ethics, if we think about these issues, are not simply a product of our statements. We can say all we want, the values that we hold and the ethics that we engage in, but they're exemplified in and they're communicated by our behavior, by our daily activities, by our instinctive reactions to situations and to others. And there's often a deep discrepancy between what we say to ourselves, much less what we say to others, and how we actually behave from moment to moment. Contemplation offers a, a way, a path, to not just claim values that you hold, but to incarnate them more deeply in your behavior, in your instincts, in your life, in your work. And so once we choose these new practices with these new outcomes that are more aligned with who we want to be, our values, our ethics, our well-being, there are additional techniques for how do you deeply integrate these? How do you bring these into your speech, into your emotions, and your reactions, and your mind, and do so in a way that makes them conscious, adaptive, and flexible, and not simply becoming, again, habituated and inflexible as your situation changes? And so, what are the methods? What are the resources that we have to bring upon this problem of new practices, and new awareness, and new integration? Well, not surprisingly, they involve some very basic things like your breath, awareness, attention, posture, movement, analysis, reflection, visualization, performance, stillness, concentration, emotion, sound, observation. All of these are the building blocks of contemplative practices. And of course, we can look to religions for some examples, Christian prayer, Buddhist meditation, Indian yoga, Taoist Tai Chi, Islamic dancing. But there has been explosive growth in the secular domain over the last couple of decades psychological therapy, deep listening, leadership training programs, stress management programs, athletic performance visualization, and much more. Um, and then the end point, what are we doing this for, is well-being, insight, innovation, efficiency, and compassion. And so we've arrived at a definition of types, but I managed to deliver a quote for you today from Thomas Jefferson that clearly authorizes the founding of the Contemplative Sciences Center. This institution of my native state the hobby of my old age will be based upon the illimitable freedom of the human mind to explore and to expose every subject susceptible of its contemplation. I think that's really unambiguous. <laughs> so, so what is contemplation? Here's a less eloquent quote for you from ourselves. Contemplation is the art and science of deeply experiential reflection on and transformation of one's practices and their impacts physical, emotional, cognitive, social, and more, with an orientation towards human exploration, well-being, and flourishing. Or we might say conscious living, conscious change, or training the mind as much as we train the body. So our challenge, well, one challenge is I have two minutes left, but otherwise, <laughs> how do you change a university? You have to engage the schools. You can't just say, oh, here's some classes in contemplation or yoga or deep listening or whatever they might be. You should come over. They're going to benefit you. You have to go into the schools. You have to understand the culture of every school. The cultures are different. We have 11 schools. We are one university, but we are also very different in our learning, our teaching, our goals, our intellectual norms. And so we've gone into those schools, and we've begun to explore 
what is the situation in those schools, what are their gaps, their challenges, the aspirations that aren't being met, and how might these new approaches help them do that. And so we've been focused on learning, research, engagement, which I'll come back to in a moment. And a few great examples, the nursing school, the education school, and the college, which have really, in the space of 16 months, engaged in fundamentally transformative programs. In addition, we try to work across the five schools. How can we bind together those 11 schools into a greater whole? So we've come up with five contexts that all of us are interested in in different kinds of ways, some of us more than others, health and well-being, education and learning, design and space, professions and performance, and culture and wisdom. So, contemplative learning at UVA. Um, one way I tend to think about this is, if you're happy with society today, if you're perfectly happy, then there's really no need to think about learning, because we're where we are. Our society is an outcome of our learning, pre-K pre all the way through graduate programs. So if you're perfectly happy with everything, then you really shouldn't listen anymore to what I'm going to say. If you're not happy with things, then you're not happy with the outcome of that learning, because we are the outcome of the learning we engage in. And so if we're not happy with some dimension of what we're doing, universities are where the leaders of the future pass through. And we also train the leaders who go and teach the K through 12 system. So we really need to be thinking about exactly what kind of learning are we fostering within a university environment. We live in an extraordinary, uh, a world of extraordinarily rapid change, and we need to be responsive, adaptive, and resilient. And we need to prepare our students to go out into the world around them, the professional world, the personal world. And so we need three circles of knowledge. I'm cognizant of the time. I'll be finished in a second. Personal development. That's my own. Stop. Stop. Okay. Personal uh, knowledge, emotional intelligence, resiliency, balance, physical health. How do we teach this within the university? Intellectual development, attention, concentration, insight, analysis, intuition, creativity, bias reduction, social relational, empathy, self-regulation, deep listening, leadership. How can we bring these three circles of knowledge together into a single learning initiative? Not just teach content or critical knowledge, but teach all three of these things simultaneously across the 11 schools. And that's what the Contemplative Learning Initiative is. We have examples that go throughout the uh, school system. Every one of the 11 schools, every one of the engineering students, for example, goes through a course, Science, Technology, and Society, 700 kids every year. The teacher that year chose, this year chose to implement mindfulness techniques, practices, ideas, and values. And across every one of the schools, K through 12 learning initiative in Curry, where they're beginning to look at the issue of how do we train our teachers and bring in contemplation, the compassionate care that Susan Bauer Wu will talk to us in a moment in the business school, as David Mick will talk to us. So throughout the university, we're experimenting now with these alternative approaches, alternative ways to think about the practices and the kinds of knowledges that they generate. Also in terms of contemplative research, trying to revisit the issue of science and the humanities. How are they bound together? How can we connect ourselves together around these issues of mind, experienceness, consciousness, the human self? How can we bind together the college and the professional schools, the science and the humanities, together with the professional schools, and think about new approaches to how we can take research, think innovatively about these old contemplative practices, but rebundle them, refashion them into new learning products that we can deploy in particular contexts, in business and healthcare and so forth. And then finally, contemplative engagement. Um, not how do we take knowledge and make it a kind of currency for engagement in the world around us. Not just take kids, train them, and push them back and produce scholarly research projects, but rather use the university and the kind of knowledge that we, learn, that we teach, that we research, and so forth, and offer it out to the broader world around us, to the different sectors in which we live. And so we have this contemplative institute bringing together K through 12 educators next fall from all around the country to talk about what to do there. We're building a contemplative university, which is built from bits and bytes, a global university for thousands of people around the world that will offer what we're doing here to a broader audience. An example of that is this spring, we're teaching a course for about 100,000 people on Buddhist meditation in the modern world. We're building a contemplative network that starts here in Charlottesville, partnering with places like the Common Grounds and all the way around to the world to Bhutan. And finally, transformation and well-being. People often think contemplation is a solitary, lonely, reflective exercise, and that's simply not the case. Contemplation is as much about learning to live with others and to live in families, in institutions, in communities, in nations, and in a single world. So thank you so much.
with the kickers up there. Thank you, David. Uh, what an honor it is for me to be here today. I've been a professor at UVA for 14 years, and it's been just a wonderful experience to be part of your, your uh, alma mater, and I'm really delighted to be invited here today. Uh, David has given you a very broad view of what the Contemplative Science Center is doing, and I'm very excited to be part of their directorate and involved with it in various ways. I was asked this morning as a commerce professor to talk about something a little bit narrower and more specific, and in particular, a course that I developed uh, about three years ago that I offer in the spring to graduating uh, seniors in our commerce school. Uh, over my career, my primary course that I've taught is market research, which I enjoy very much. But if several years ago, I began to think about what else I might be able to do that would reignite some other past uh, interests of mine and, and to bring extra value to UVA and the Commerce School. Uh, and what I was doing at the time was actually uh, uh, conducting some research uh, on executive wisdom. We were interviewing executives who had been um, uh, recommended to us as being not just smart, not just successful, but particularly wise and inspiring people. We went out and interviewed a bunch of these folks, and uh, we published several papers, myself and a management professor in commerce. And uh, that got me increasingly into the wisdom literature. There's an enormous literature in the social sciences, famous people like Robert Sternberg, Paul Baltz, and Monica Ardelt, among others. Um, and uh, I might recommend to you today, one of the things I came upon was a book that was just published a couple of years ago called Wisdom from Philosophy to Neuroscience. It's available in paperback, and I would highly recommend the book. It's now become one of the foundations for the course that I teach. But you might also wonder why in the world would I ever have an interest in any of this. Well, I'm a little bit of an odd uh, business professor because my undergraduate degree is in philosophy. So it was a way for me to come back to some of my earliest roots. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about this course in just a minute. But what is wisdom? Well, like most hypothetical constructs, there's tens of definitions and nobody really agrees. Uh, but I've heard it said by uh, uh, one particularly uh, insightful writer that from an Aristotelian perspective, wisdom is doing the right thing at the right time in the right manner for the right reasons. Sometimes in ethics, we pretty much just focus on doing the right thing. But wisdom, in some sense, is arguably even broader than that. Uh, here's another little bit of an academic way of looking at it is that wisdom is the ability to recognize the essential of any situation we face in life or in business, right, and to respond well and fittingly to those circumstances. It takes a lot of awareness, a lot of deep contemplation and thought to produce wise business decisions and in our own lives. And then the basis of the course really comes down to Aristotle said the purpose of life was a word that he used in Greek was eudaimonia which is interpreted or, or translated in different ways. It can be called happiness. I prefer to see it as being well-being or flourishing, have a flourishing life. And then as Aristotle went on to write about this, the question is, well, how do you get there? How do you lead a life of flourishing and well-being? And his answer was wisdom, right? So that's kind of the foundation from which uh, I built the course. How important is wisdom and why should we study it? Well, a lot of people have talked about it. Prior to Aristotle, his teacher Plato said that uh, First among the virtues found in the state, wisdom comes into view. So Plato thought it was pretty important, and a more contemporary writer, among others I could quote, uh, the Dalai Lama saying, wisdom is the foundation of all good qualities. So well, why do we really need wisdom today in our personal and professional lives? Well, as you all know, several of these things will just resonate with you immediately. We are facing oceans of stimuli and information every day, much of it due to the increases of technology coming into our lives. Uh, and, and, and in business and, and, and raising children and all kinds of things that we face. We're just bombarded with information. And how do we deal with that? There's a lot of research on information overload, and it's no surprise that people make uh, suboptimal decisions because of feeling so overloaded, relying back on their biases, some of their status quo tendencies that may have not always have served them well. And the way to break out of those patterns, to, to take advantage of the plasticity of the mind, to make better decisions. Information is often complex and contradictory that we get. Even in business, when we're deciding to open up into new markets, is the demand really there or not? What is the level of political risk? What is being faced? And sometimes we'll get conflicting information about that. What should you do? What can you do in that? Life and information, of course, are fast. We all know that. And again, a lot of this is because technology, transportation, 
and, and so forth. And uh, it's just coming at us so quickly, uh, we, we feel quite that we at times almost feel uh, um, uh, locked down, that we don't know quite what to do. Another one to bring into that, which I talk with my students about, is this fallacy of multitasking. It's something that's become a, a rather common behavior of all of us in our day-to-day -day lives, especially the younger generation, including the students I see every day. And I don't think I have to tell you how many PhDs you need to know the outcome of the research on multitasking has shown consistently it ain't good. Okay, people can't do it. They convince themselves they can, but it tends to have detrimental effects on the way that they think about themselves, relate to other people, and make decisions in life. So, and I sense this among my students even in the course that uh, they carry around their devices, they're on the computer all the time. Viscerally, deep down, they've understood that this is not always working the best for them. There's time to slow down. There's time to think about things in a deeper, more contemplative way, and that it might improve their lives as well as where they're going with their careers. So, also today, why do we need wisdom? Well, we have far-reaching influences in our opinions and our decisions. Our executives are global executives. They travel all around the world. They make decisions that influence societies, ecologies, uh, partnering or not with the governments in which they, uh, they, uh, they face when they go into these different countries. The, the decisions that we make also, we just think even about technology. We send out an opinion, we interact on the web, suddenly Thousands, if not millions of people can know what we think and what we see or what we feel. It's pretty amazing. And because of that, there's a lot of moral issues that are wrapped up into this. What is the right thing to say or the right thing to do? And, and particularly the decisions and behaviors of executives, all the stakeholders, the, the, the consumers, their employees, the societies that they can influence with the decisions that they make. So I would share, before I talk to you a little bit about my course, I, a couple of my favorite quotes. A uh, hundred years ago, T.S. Eliot said, where is the wisdom we have lost in information? And he was saying that a hundred years ago. So we have so much data and so much information, but what we really need is wisdom. And I think a really interesting quote that relates to day-to-day -day life, but especially in business, it's not just survival of the fittest, beating out your competitor, having the highest market share, uh, taking care of stockholder wealth and so forth, but it's survival of the wisest, doing the things that society, that customers, that employees will feel inspired by, that you will make decisions that they admire, and that they will talk about your company in the most uh, uh, lofty, if you will, and, and sincere ways that you care about what you're doing as an organization. So given that, uh, a couple uh, slides here to tell you a bit more about the course. The, the, the Stephen Hall book, which I mentioned, is one of the foundations. And in the book, Hall talks about what he calls pillars of wisdom. So what we do is a number of readings and videos where we take on these different topics. Emotional regulation is a key thing in wisdom, as David even was pointing to. Many of us go through our lives every day not being aware of how we're feeling and reacting quickly to what we're facing. Our emotions and research is shown in psychology and other areas have a way of overriding our brains very, very quickly. If we cannot stop for a moment, ever so slowly, to say, how am I feeling and how am I reacting to the situation before we open our mouth or before we do something? And we encourage to talk with our students about that. What do they know and what do they feel about that and how can they be better about managing and regulating their emotions? Knowing what's important, what should we value, how do we know what we value. Moral reasoning is another one we take up in the course, which is, sort of sounds like another word for ethics, but oftentimes in business or even in day-to-day -day life, it's not about what's right or wrong, it's between what's right, right, or right, based on what your perspective might be and what argument you may uh, want to marshal. I'm gonna give you an example in just a moment. Compassion is one, as was brought up about the nursing school. We're trying to make sure that our students appreciate more and more the compassion that has to be brought in running a business, not just for in customers, but even for employees. One of the books I share with them is a classic book from the 1980s called The Managed Heart by Arlie Hochschild, a professor from the University of Berkeley. She studied airline attendants and what they were undergoing on, on, in, in their careers and the demands that were on them to smile and control their emotions and basically put on a performance no matter how they felt. We see that everywhere now in our service economy. Our students need to be aware as they become leaders in organizations, the pressures that are upon these frontline people 
And how can we understand what they go through to train them better, to help them to cope better and to manage better for their own personal lives as well as for the organization? So a lot of that has to do with com compassion. We also, in the book, talk, we, we do readings and discuss humility. It's a very important thing. Uh, most of what we don't know far dwarfs what we know in any given situation, including in business decisions. We talk about altruism, patience, dealing with uncertainty, resilience, which I'll say a little bit more about in another one, is very important to wisdom. Those of you now who are, have several decades have been in this life, you think about what you've learned and how you maybe have gotten better in some cases and the decisions that you make and the way that you lead, it's because you've been through tough times. It's because you've learned from your mistakes. You've faced the examined life and you have fought back, whether it's been a health problem or a situation in business or other aspects of personal life. It's well known that, that this kind of growth of resilience, a dedication to resilience, is what helps lead people over the course of their lives to become wiser. This is an interesting topic with 21-year-olds, okay? But, but I'm going to tell you in a moment how, how I try to deal with that. We also, finally, I might mention, is that I think one of the most central important things to trying to lead a wiser life is to expand your ability to be aware, to be more mindful. It's as if to say to lose the old, use the old cliche is to see the forest before you worry about the trees. It's a kind of a what's going on here before one starts to dive into analyzing all the details and making decisions, all right? And so even in my course, we do some teaching of meditation. Uh, to get, and for many of the students who have never experienced it, just three or four or five minutes of quietness, of quietude and breathing, and what they come to realize about their body and what they feel. And suddenly, then, or then we will move into talking about cases and so forth. I, I think it, it speaks to them in a way that I have found they have reacted very positively to. They begin to understand that you must be better aware. The re and I point that out. Again, those of you who have studied psychology, William James, 100 years ago, the father of modern psychology said, that attention is the greatest resource and the scarcest resource that we have as human beings. And he said that the most difficult thing is to selectively use your attention over the course of the day. And people that can't control their attention, the voluntary attention, tend to have more negative outcomes in their emotions and in their thoughts and, and their coping in life. Many studies in psychology has now shown that. So to become wiser, we must also be more mindful. This is my last slide to kind of give you a little more specific details of what we do in the course. It's called Cultivating Wisdom for Personal and Professional Life. Well, we use a, a, a variety of readings and videos, which I've been referring to, but also cases. Let me give you an example. This is a really tough case. There's a company expanding internationally, selling ultrasound equipment for diagnostic purposes, obviously, in healthcare settings and clinics. But in this particular developing country, they are increasingly using the ultrasound equipment to pre-sex the fetus before the baby would be born. And because of that, that led them to have increasing amounts of abortions because the culture prefers male babies over female babies. A very difficult situation. You're the company, you're trying to grow wealth for the company, for the stockholders, you're trying to do what's right, but how do you make a wiser decision about the use of this equipment, encouraging what you might feel is in concert with your values as a company, the better way, but yet be sympathetic and, and so forth and understanding to the, the current cult, the, the, the context of that culture and how you're going to go forward. Are you going to quit selling the ultrasound? Are you going to find new standards? Can you, can you do things that are going to be more win-win-win um, for as many people, the stakeholders as possible, that will be the wiser thing one might argue to do? Another one is things like food and McDonald's. What is McDonald's responsibility? I mean, obesity has risen to such scary levels anymore. How far should they go? Many people think they have not gone far enough, along with other fast food companies. And we talk and we debate that what is their obligation for what would be the wise thing for them to do? What are the things they can think about with their menu, with the way they treat their customers and so forth and what they offer? What might be arguably the wisest thing they could do and still make the profit, keep the market share, grow the company the way they seek to? We have exercises. This is one I started to refer to just a moment ago. Even though the students are often only 21 or 22 years old, they have faced some tough times in their lives. Maybe they had an injury as an athlete in high school 
Maybe they've had a death in their family or something else. Maybe they've been ill at some time. And I asked them in an exercise to think about sometime they faced a very difficult moment and they somehow pulled their bootstraps up, they worked through it, and they learned and they were stronger for it afterwards. And I get them to write about that, about what did you learn? What lesson did you come away with that you will now apply as you go further into your life? I want them to think about this act of resilience, this, the importance of building resilience, and realize that they already in their own lives have been through this in their own way, and to value that. And as I mentioned, we do contemplative practices like uh, guided visualization. We do some breathing meditation. Um, so it, in the reaction I get from the students has been very, very positive. We end the course with a, a document that I call Life Envisionment, where we wrap everything up with I have them write about what they see as their dreams and their goals, not just for their career, what kind of company or industry, but how do you want to live? What is your lifestyle? What is it that you want? Where do you want to live? How do you see your community style as you interact with your community? Uh, wh what do you want to say about what you think will be your spiritual goals as you will go forward, however you define that? And they put out these four or five page documents. I'm the only one that re reads them, but they are so inspiring. It's unbelievable to read what these graduating UVA students in commerce are saying about what they want to do with their lives and as the best they know right now. And I ask them to hold on to this document so that 10 years from now or 20 years from now, they can go back to that document and wonder what were they saying when they were 22, where they thought they were going with a career in business or nonprofits, uh, for-profits, whatever, as well as in their personal lives and how they can make this a better world. Thank you very much. Can you hear me? Now it's on. Okay, great. So thank you, Dory and David and David, 3Ds. And um, this is amazing to see all of you here on a Saturday morning. It's my first year at UVA, and I have not had the privilege of um, being at a university that had this sense of community and spirit, and I'm so thrilled to be here. So thank you. So what I'm here to talk about, I'm going to bring in the healthcare perspective and speak to you about healthcare in general and then more specifically about what we are doing with the Compassionate Care Initiative in the School of Nursing that has far-reaching impact through the health sciences and um, the university. So begin with this, for you to consider your lives and the current condition of healthcare in this country, meaning that we are burdened. There's a lot that's going on in our lives. The technology that, that's before us, the change in our society, the economy, always asked to do more and more and more, and there's, you know, how often do we hear that there's just not enough time to do everything that needs to get done? Or for a lot of the, the patients and the people we see, that there's not money in the bank to pay the bills. That's a reality of just life, our lives in general. But as it comes to health care, it is the burdens of taking care of sicker and sicker people who are living longer and more and more people and not realities of not enough people to take care of them and with less money to take care of people and also not enough time. So I likened what's happening to our fragile healthcare system to the storm. And these images just speak to the realities of healthcare in, in our country. And the suffering that's taking place with patients, families, nurses, doctors, patient care technicians, everybody, it's there. You know, if you want to learn about compassion, just walk into the emergency room. 
for five minutes. Get out of your own sort of um, worries and just go in there. And you'll see the suffering that, that is there. And when you're around it, compassion begin, begins to, to grow and, and to develop. But I want to just mention some sobering facts that um, keep me going. This is my life's work. This is something that's really, really important to me. Just because these are sobering facts um, that may not be so positive, it's the opportunity for us to look at them and say, what can we do about them? So there is a major healthcare workforce shortage right now in this country, and it's getting worse. Less, um, there basically, if we speak to, to nursing in general, we have 7 million nurses in this country right now. 10 years from now, it's forecast it's going to be uh, uh, not, there's going to be 29% less nurses than we need to care for the society. Physicians, the trends are the, the same. And less and less people are actually going into medicine that used to go in, into medicine. And another area of the healthcare workforce that I want to just put voice to for a moment are the people who are um, patient care technicians or home health aides or the, the assistants. Well, these are the people who are the ones that are really at the bedside more than anybody else in this country. And with the aging workforce, there's going to be even, we need even more. And the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics say that that area of those uneducated people who are providing the care is going to get even greater. We need even more people. And these are the most vulnerable people who aren't educated, who get paid less, but they are the ones that are at the bedside. So when we look at the workforce shortage and trying to have impact, we can't just talk about nurses and doctors. I want to make sure that we are looking at the entire continuum of every person that has a direct or indirect impact on, um, on caring for people. So dementia, I make note here that as our um, population is living longer, more and more people are going to have dementia. And they're going to need the care. Currently, there's 5 million people in this country with, with dementia. And most of these people are not cared for in a facility. Maybe many of you are privileged and you're able to put your, your loved ones in a facility. But the reality, most people in this country don't have that luxury. So who's taking care of them? The family. And that adds to stress. We're talking about stress resiliency. So we need more providers. And in the clinical setting, this idea of moral distress, and we talked a bit about it already, but that's basically put into to situations where you sort of know that the right thing is not to necessarily keep prolonging somebody's life, for example or give them one more round of a chemotherapeutic drug when the chances of it helping them are very little and the side effects are great. So for, from a nursing perspective, for example, there is a lot of moral distress just having to go into work and to have those kinds of decisions. There is bullying that happens in the healthcare workplace. Hate to tell you that. It's not just the, what's happening in the, in the schools, K through 12. It is alive and well. And it's very upsetting. Nurses to nurses, nurses to doctors, doctors to nurses, et cetera. And there's not necessarily a culture of respect in, in, throughout the, the healthcare system. And as a result, quality and safety are impacted. And while many people, some people do choose to leave the profession, and I already said that there's a, a shortage, we don't want to have a shortage, many people continue to go to work. And they go in to work day in, day out, and what we call the working wounded. And they're burnt out. They're emotionally exhausted. They're overextended by, um, by work and home. And as a result, there's also depersonalization, meaning they don't take care of the person who has a whole life, who has a whole story, who has a whole family. No, they become a diagnosis in a, in a room or just sort of the, the bio, 
you know, the, the biographical data around them instead of them, treating them as a person. And burnout leads to low personal accomplishment, meaning that basically there's this sense of feeling inadequate, incompetent, inefficient. And it leads to what we call burnout. I just want to briefly mention there's a, word, a term called compassion fatigue that's getting a lot of attention. And I don't like that word because to me, I think it gives compassion a bad name. It's, I think it's a lack of compassion fatigue, that these are well-meaning clinicians who are basically kind of um, being forced into a very busy technological situation, and they don't have the time to feel like they're being compassionate. So it's really uncompassion fatigue. So very quickly, this is a study that looked at a um, very large study, well-done study in the state of Pennsylvania, looked at hospitals and looked at the stress levels and the burnout levels of nurses and then looked at quality outcomes. And basically, they found that the hospitals that had 30% less burnout or less stressed nurses had much le less infection, fewer infections. And in one hospital, fewer 6,000 um, fewer infections that resulted in a, in a savings of $69 million. So this is not just fluff and a nice thing to do, but it, there is a business sense that's connected to it. So just to consider this quote for a moment, that plants are born tender and pliant. Dead, they are brittle and dry. The hard and stiff will be broken, and the soft and supple will prevail. And to me, this is at the heart of stress resilience. And as we've been talking about this morning, how, to be, how can we be most resilient in this, in this storm, in the stressful lives that we live? And contemplation, contemplative practices are essential to that. And compassionate care. So compassionate care and contemplative practices Re lead to awareness, self-awareness. If you're aware of yourself, then you can be more aware of others and your surroundings, presence, and resilience. And examples of contemplative practices, David and David have talked already a bit about it, but just to expand, it could be as simple as walking in nature. It could be walking out to your car and looking up at the beautiful leaves for a moment. That is a contemplative pause. Prayer, centering prayer, meditation, and reflective writing. So we know that um, meditation can change the brain. It's getting a lot of, lot of press right now. And this is just to show you that um, this is, there is real hard science that is going on in this area of contemplative science, contemplative neuroscience. And um, you could see that the number of, this is NIH, which is the gold standard of research funding in this country. Right now, it's very hard to get NIH funding. It's about 7% of all applications that go in get funded. But you could see here in 2012, there were 142 studies that were um, funded in this area of mindfulness, yoga, or, um, or meditation with over $48 million. And in September 2013, when I did a search, we found that there were almost 500 peer-reviewed scientific articles using those same, same search terms. So we know that these are practices. This is mental training. This is ways of changing our, our brains because of this idea of neuroplasticity. We can change the structure of our brain. We can change the cross-firing and wiring as a result of any type of mental training, whether it's multitasking or pausing. So the monkey means our busy minds. We are jumping from thought to thought to thought, grasping and just not even aware that we're jumping from thought to thought. And we're looking at dropping in and, and being aware of our thoughts, but also being aware of our way of being. This is a, a, um, a, my way of looking at mindfulness. Essentially, yes, we can do things mindfully, but at its heart, it's a way of being. It's our way of being and the quality of our being with others, quality of being with ourselves and being with others. And it's our ability to intentionally bring awareness to present moment experience with openness and curiosity and not pushing anything away that we don't like, 
and not holding on to things that we absolutely love. We're just aware of it all, moment by moment. So which one are you? Are you the, the dog or the dog walker? <laughs> which one do you want to be? This is mindful presence. This is not learning something that you don't already know. This is who we already are, but it's just gotten covered up. So we come back to the storm, and we can drop the anchor anytime. Drop it. And when we can drop, we can get clearer. Just drop right in. Right now. Take a breath. Just drop right in. And we're looking at having compassionate presence, not fit filling every moment with words, but allowing silence, a comfortable, compassionate silence. And this study I, I won't um, get into because of, of time, but suffice to say this is a new study that showed, it, it looked at physicians, nurse practitioners, and physician's assistants, and found that those that were more mindful had better communications, patient was more satisfied. But what's most interesting, that patients were more satisfied, but it didn't take any more time to have the interaction. So when I hear clinicians saying they don't have any time to be present, <laughs> this is actually showing that it doesn't take any more time, but yet people are happier. So at UVA, we have this Compassionate Care Initiative. And essentially, our goal is to have safe, high-functioning healthcare environments with healthy and happy nurses, physicians, other healthcare workers, where heart and humanness are valued and embodied. And our goal is to cultivate a resilient and compassionate healthcare workforce, locally and nationally. And at the heart of it, it's grounded in contemplative approaches. So briefly, what we're doing here at UVA, we are getting, weaving this into the fabric of the entire School of Nursing and into the healthcare workforce. We're beginning with students because as even though the healthcare system is broken right now, we're hoping that by beginning upstream and helping our students one by one by one, that gradually the cultures are going to change and 10 years from now it's going to be different and better. We have two resilience rooms in the School of Nursing. It's open to the whole grounds. Many people from all over use our, our wonderful space. We have meditation cushions and yoga mat. We have mats, we have classes in there. Uh, we have drop-in classes open to anybody, even in the community. You guys can come until the, we run out of space. Um, we have formal courses, and we have resiliency retreats at Morven, this wonderful facility, 7,000 acres, about 20 minutes from here that UVA owns. Every single nursing student participates in at least one um, resiliency retreat. And we, we not only have a great day together, but it gets them thinking and realizing how they can apply this into their everyday self-care life as they become professionals. We have compassionate care champions throughout the, the system, and we have trained the trainer institutes. A plug, next Saturday we have a conference, um, Compassionate Care at the End of Life. If you really want to go, you can let me know. And, um, and we have a new website, compassion.virginia.edu, that's going to start soon. But more, even more importantly is we have a great website that you didn't show long enough, David, uvacontemplation.org. Okay, thank you. Okay, so we have um, about 10 minutes for questions. That was awesome. You can see why I love working with these faculty, you know? UVA is awesome. So I, I am going to let you have a question. We're going to do. We've got two microphones. We have microphones. Yeah, and take your, take your other mics off, David. Take them. Yeah. All right, let's have some questions. I know we hit a nerve. <laughs> um, good to see you. Hello, I'm Lacey Colligan. I'm a physician. And I have the privilege of working with very amazing medical students who are very open to these concepts and very dedicated to compassion 
and family care. And then they go into this system and something mm -hmm. happens, some kind of socialization. I don't even know how aware they are of what's happening. And I see them as fellows and residents at the end of the training and they're different people. Mm -hmm. They don't mean to be, but they are. So I, it's wonderful when we have access to students. I think they are more eager and open. But how can we reach those, in medicine it's the attendings, senior administration, how can we reach those? Because if they're not modeling the behavior, the youngsters lose it. Yeah, thank you. This is Lacey Colligan. She trained here in our neonatal ICU, wonderful physician colleague. Thank you for your question. Susan, would you like to take that and? Uh... You can try to answer it too, Dory. Oh, yeah, I could. Well, I just introduced the uh, yeah. questioner. <laughs> <laughs> Who I know. <laughs> I don't, you know what, I don't have the answer. I think, I, my, you know, our, our colleagues, you know, in the medical school and in the nursing, nursing school, we are working together. And, and we are doing programs that are, you know, everybody in the healthcare system is invited to. And so what I didn't mention, we do have retreats and training programs for them. And there are a lot of physicians that are attending that are, attend that are coming. However, it's a self-select group. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think we can fix the, all of the brokenness we currently have. So I think we're doing the best we can to heal mm -hmm. what we have but look at doing something different for the future and hopefully the new graduates and the new leaders. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm hopeful about that, yeah. thank you. We're creating really great partners. You know, we have a new Dean of Medicine here, uh, Nan Dunlap, and I'm getting a new Executive Vice President who's gonna run the health system and all these people totally get this. So I am, I am just very, very hopeful, but I appreciate that question. We've got a couple more hands up. Um, so we've got one, right I've got one okay. right here. Yeah, go ahead. Please introduce yourself if Hi. you don't mind. It just happened that I know Lacey. <laughs> okay. My name is Tulia Lynch. Um, I, I became a yoga teacher through Kripalu, which is this amazing institute. I haven't taught since, but what I learned was that the body has many different layers to it. One is the physical, one is the breath, one is the emotions. But then there's another one that's this, this amazing sensation that, that is a conduit to wisdom, to mm -hmm. being wherever, learning the answer. And in regard to that, um, I find that contemplation, those practices are the things that basically lead you to the answer of what it is that you need to do in the moment. Mm -hmm. And the only thing I, and I, and I absolutely am in awe of what UVA is doing through this Contemplative Science Center. I just wanna share a poem that Lao Tzu has basically um, written, which I think is the end goal of contemplation mm -hmm. in any situation be it in the medical school or in business. Mm -hmm. And so, in essence, it's what everybody keeps on seeing in the media. Mm -hmm. And this is it, if you don't mind. Sure. Always we hope someone else has the answer. Some other place will be better. Some other time it will work out. This is it. No one else has the answer. No other place will be better. And it has already turned out. At the center of your being, you have the answer. Search your heart and see that the way to do is the way to be. And in essence, what that says is, mm -hmm. yeah, there are experts all over the place, mm -hmm. but truly, the answer lies within, and the contemplation practices that UVA teaches I believe, are, are the way. Well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Julia, for your support. I would like to let um, David Germano mention about Kripalu and the partnerships, the many partnerships that we are um, extending. David, do you want to say a word or two about Kripalu? Sure. Kripalu is the largest yoga retreat center in the country and I think probably in the Americas. 
And so we had their leadership team down last spring, and we decided to start an annual symposium in yoga in the schools, looking at these various programs all across the country and bringing together researchers, practitioners, teachers, principals, school administrators, and so forth to try to talk in a collective fashion year after year. And so we're doing the first one this um, April down in Kripalu, and then the following year we'll be doing it in UVA, and we'll be switching back and forth. And that's one instance of us trying to think about UVA as a place where all these different things intersect, not just academics, but people who are teaching contemplation in that fashion, people out in the business world, like David was talking about, community development organizations, and so forth. Yeah. Thank you. You know, this is really what makes the UVA that all of us love so very special. We probably are the only university, and there's, what, 5,000, that really is focusing on this at the presidential level on down. So it's, it's pretty amazing. Maybe one more question. Um, I've got one right here in the oh, middle. Okay. Did you oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Have... Maybe two more questions. My name is Charles Harwood. I would guess my life's purpose is probably mindfulness, so I, I understand what you're saying. Mm -hmm. The thing that bothers me so much is that unless, I guess to put it in a funny way, unless we get yoga into McDonald's and Walmart, I don't, it's, it's going to continue to be that influx. Mm -hmm. It's wonderful that we're learning to be more compassionate at the university level and in the hospitals, but we've got to slow the flow. Okay, thanks for your comment. Anybody want to take that, Susan? Do you want to make a yeah, comment? I, 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 so if I hear you correctly, it's the idea of sort of having this mindfulness kind of thing of, yeah, I think, I, I, so I think there, it's, it's wonderful that there's great interest in this area, and I think the concern is that it will get sort of watered down and look and, and be considered sort of a quick fix, like, and um, our hope is for people to understand that it's much more than that. And if that's the entree into it, that's okay. That's how, I don't see it as being so bad if that's the entree into it. So, but, but we don't wanna lose the, the richness of why we're doing that and some of the traditions that, um, that are behind them. I'm going to let David say something, then we'll have two more questions. It's, uh, it's not going to happen overnight in businesses and executives, but um, it, it's something that, that, that is building momentum. And I would say, in fairness, it's not just at UVA's uh, Commerce School or whatever. Harvard is teaching some of this as well. Uh, Stanford and a number of other places, but we're obviously trying to, to be out front as well. Uh, and the question was raised, how do, you, how do you get to the higher level people? How do you get more people buying in? And I, and I think it has to do with the culture of the organization and the leadership. And obviously we have Dean Fontaine here representing the nursing school. I spent a half an hour yesterday meeting with my dean, Carl Zeithamel. Some of you who know him have heard of him. It was a tremendously positive uh, discussion specifically about teaching contemplative practices in the Commerce School, not just in my two-credit course that I teach in the fourth year uh, of these students' experience. Uh, we're talking now about integrating this sort of thing f more deeply into the curriculum so that all of our students have some taste of it and can begin to appreciate its value mm -hmm. going forward, for hopefully, for the rest of their lives. Great. Thank you. So um, over here. Good morning. My name is Rita Woods. And um, about 10 years ago, I left corporate America and followed a personal passion, which I've had for about 25 years which is yoga. I became a yoga teacher for the past eight years. I've focused on teaching K through 12 um, children's yoga programs. I developed nice. a curriculum and have since been implementing the programs within the state of Virginia, primarily the Tidewater area. And what I have found over the course of the past, probably more recent four years, is a tremendous reception on the part of faculty, administration, staff within the, these K through 12 schools to also um, acquire the skills to incorporate within the classroom environment, particularly in mindfulness within children, whether it's mm -hmm. children with ADD, ADHD, children that see therapists outside of school, just within the day-to-day -day curriculum. I was curious if the Curry School was working with the future teachers of our country, of our, of our, um, of the world for that matter, in integrating that mm -hmm. as they learn the curricular within um, 
you know, the, the school environment as sure, far as... Sure, I can, I can mention that. Yeah. And David, so we have, uh, the Curry School <coughs> is right on board with us. Um, they have just hired Tish Jennings, who is probably a world leader on integrating mindfulness practices, including yoga, from K to 12. And she just started, like, this month. And so we're really very, very excited. David, is there anything else to say about that? I think um, education, we've also got a project, a demonstration project in Encinitas, looking at a curriculum. Um, and we're doing the evaluation for that right now. You know, the one thing about teaching children these practices is they take them home. Too, you know, and that might be the upstream part. David, was there anything else to say about Tish? Yeah, I think the, the Dean of Education has been one of the most forthright leaders at the university in terms of contemplation, Bob Pianta. And it's much more than just Tish Jennings, who's a prominent leader who's coming in to help with the teacher preparation program, but a number of the leaders at Curry are getting involved in a variety of ways. And just to mention two more examples, the Sonima Foundation is creating a national curriculum in health and well-being. Started out in Encinitas, now we're exploring extensions to Houston and Louisville. And Patrick Tolan, who heads up the Positive Youth Development Group at the University YouthNext, associated with Curry, has been doing the research part of that. And we're hoping to do a very large-scale research program to look at how these programs actually, what kinds of impacts they have in K through four and five through six, et cetera, on various kinds of things, learning outcomes, absenteeism, bullyism, health, uh, bullying and health and so forth. Mm -hmm. And then also Sarah Rem Kaufman's doing a program looking at the issues of school governance. How do you bind together principals, associate principals, lead teachers and so forth using mindfulness and yoga and other contemplative techniques and a broad variety of other things happening in Curry. And finally I'd add to that just in response to your question, my background is really densely contemplative. I mean, I, I do things I'm never going to tell you about because they're like all <laughs> Tibet and they're very kind of uh, complicated and so forth. And so when I got involved with this, it was a very much a disjuncture for me. And a lot of my friends said, oh, what are you doing that for? You know, you should be writing your research and doing these things back in Tibet and so forth. And one of my responses was, go into a K through four classroom and look at these kids who are learning to be resilient, attentive, aware, creative, imaginative, and so forth. And if you think that's less profound than what happens in a monastery with their complex techniques, then you're welcome to your thoughts. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, David. We're always welcome to his thoughts. I think we can do one more. I've got and, one uh, more right here. Yeah, this is the person with the microphone, and I, she didn't pick you, but we will let you come talk to the panel after as well. Yes, go ahead, sir. Hi, everyone. My name is Jake Yeager. I'm a graduate student at the Darden School of Business. And I'm particularly interested in meditation. I've been practicing for a good bit of time now. And uh, this question for David Mick. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about the interface between leadership and contemplative practice. Um, well, I'm not a, as an academic, I'm not a leadership uh, expert like Tom Bateman and several other people we have in our commerce school. But I, I think the connection is short and strong. I mean, that people that can... Uh, executives that have more capacity to regulate their emotion, to be aware of how they're sometimes automatically reacting to situations, and, and ever so quickly, maybe just even slightly, to stop that reaction, to step back, ask themselves wh what's going on here, what's being asked of me as a decision or as a mentor advising or, or working on a team and making a decision. I think it's just straightforward that anything you can do to improve your control of your own mind, your own consciousness, is going to lead you to greater wisdom in the leadership that you will provide to your organization and working with your, your colleagues in an, in, in an organization. I think we're still, in the business field, as far as academic research, we're still trying to grow that, that domain. As Susan was mentioning, there's over 400 articles a year right now being published on mindfulness and its influences. Much of it is in the field of medicine, health sciences. Uh, in the business field, we've been a little bit behind, but the courses are happening, and I think the evidence is coming forward that uh, it absolutely is a crucial role. And I, th I think if you're meditating, you, you know that. We just need to be able to expose more of our business students to it, and I think that they will see for themselves from their own heart what the value of it is. Great. Thank you. So thank you, everybody.